I'm excited to share what's on my heart this morning. We're in a season um, of know, grow, and go. Uh, the first four months of this year, we're focusing on knowing, on knowing God. Uh, our text for the year is Daniel 11.32, this kind of second half of it, which speaks of the people of God and says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And this is the people who God has called us to be. It is a people, firstly, that know their God. And when you truly know him, then you can display strength. You can display his strength, and then in his strength you can take action. And so we're digging in today on the topic of knowing. And what I really want to focus on today in the uh, text that we're looking at, I want to talk about the choices we make in knowing God. You know, we have this kind of glamorous idea sometimes when we think of what it is to know God and we picture David sitting on a rock or peaceful um, as he's looking across his sheep gently grazing, uh, sitting back and playing the harp or the lyre uh, in this kind of idyllic setting where he's fellowshipping with God. And it's this kind of glamorous sunset, walking in the beach type of image that we have of knowing God. And that's awesome. And maybe it's like that some of the time. But what we, what we see is that having the type of relationship with God and that knowing that people like David had was a result of choices that they made. And sometimes difficult choices. So what we're going to look at today is how we choose to know him. And uh, we're going to look at an interesting character in the Bible here, a guy by the name of Enoch. Anybody know anyone by the name of Enoch? Let's see. We do have somebody here. That's awesome. Not too common these days. So we're going to dive into a passage in uh, Genesis, uh, fifth chapter. Before we do that, uh, let's just pray together. Father, we're hungry this morning as we come before you, Lord, and our heart's desire is to know you. And I thank you what you spoke through our time of worship this morning, uh, that you are the God that is there, that you fight on our behalf, that you are surrounding us, that you are our source and you are our strength. And Lord, we choose to believe that. And we want to learn, Lord, that in all circumstances that we can have that outlook, that our lives can model that conviction and that faith. And so, Lord, we listen to you this morning. We come to you with open ears and open hearts. So we come to you with hearts that are soft and ready to change. We're ready to take steps in different directions than we may already have been walking in. We're ready to change our direction as you so lead. Lord, we want you. We want you more than anything else. So, Lord, we listen to you this morning, and we, we're ready to hear your word. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to read a couple of passages here about my good friend uh, Enoch, and uh, then we're going to talk about his life. So let's uh, look here. This is Genesis 5, uh, verse 22. This is early on, obviously. Um, we look at this man, uh, Enoch, um, who I believe was a son of 
uh, Cain, one of those guys, Cain or Abel. You can go back and see whose son he was. Um, and we read this. After the birth of Methuselah, which was his son, uh, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. So we're not going to take any time and try and figure out what exactly it means uh, that God taking Enoch. Um, many people have debated that over time. But what we're interested in here is we're interested in getting a picture of this man that, that is spoken of, the thing he is known for, that in his time he walked in close fellowship with God. And for some 300 years, which is pretty good going, I would say. Um, for most of us, we're, you know, we're probably about, at the most, about a sixth or a fifth of the way through that. And so we have this man who was um, birthed early on in history, who had this incredible relationship with God, that when he is mentioned, the one thing that he is known for is that he had a close and deep relationship with God. So he went on, and he had uh, uh, children, as we read, um, and then his children had children, and so one of his grandsons was a guy named Lamech. And so when we read this passage here about his grandson, this passage we're reading is taking place, these events are taking place around about the time that this man Enoch, walking with God, close to him, heart to heart, was taken to be with the Lord. And so we want to ask ourselves, what were the circumstances surrounding this man Enoch? How was he different? What did he do? And here is what we read about what was going on at the time that this man Enoch went and, to be with the Lord. Lamech named his son Noah. For he said, may he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. And we read later on, we talk about God's interaction with his people, that this sentiment that his grandson Lamech expressed was um, kind of the temperature of society at the time. That God then later spoke that this people was an unbelieving people, that they were doing wrong, that they were complaining. And so we have this snapshot here of society, that there's this group of people, pretty much everyone, that are looking around them, and they are feeling the pain of life, and they are looking to their creator and saying, you have cursed this ground. Life is hard for us. And we, I hope that this person here, this man Noah, will be able to bring us relief from, the, from our suffering. And the name Noah actually it sounds like the Hebrew word to bring relief. And yet, in the midst of all this, we have one man. One man when everybody else around him is untrusting and is accusing of God. It's kind of that, that syndrome that, uh, that was with Adam in the garden when he said, oh, it, under pressure, it was the woman that you gave me. 
And so here they are, and these people are blaming God and saying, our lives are hard because you have cursed it. Yet in the midst of this, there is one man who stands out. And how is it that in these same circumstances, when all others turn away from God, one man turns to God? And he, had, he, when other people were looking for relief and comfort, he found relief and comfort. He had it in the Lord. And I want to suggest to you that the closeness and the connection of your fellowship and knowing God is dependent almost entirely on the decisions that you and I make within the circumstances that surround us. Or we're going to look at this man, the life Enoch, and we're going to draw some parallels of, from his life and how it was that he chose to be a man that knew God when those around him were choosing to be people that curse God. All right, let's jump in. Um, Enoch, it's in, uh, here, just interesting to note um, names again. Um, the, the root word... Um, of the word Enoch in the Hebrew, I'm trying to pronounce it, I think it's Hanach, something like that. The root word, it means to narrow. So the word Enoch is kind of, um, is uh, translated dedicated. So you've got this man that was dedicated, then you've got the Noah, the people, which means relief or comfort. Um, and this man, Enoch, was a man who was dedicated. And the picture here, it's, it's from a narrowing that, you, that there is only one way that you can go. And so it's often used um, discipline um, or dedication because you narrow your, your path in such a way that there is only one choice for you to go. All right. Humanity was desperately searching for comfort and for relief from somewhere and someone, but Enoch has had found his comfort and his relief, and he lived with him for 300 years. So let's talk about choosing then, the choices that we make. So point number one here that we learn from the life of Enoch is this, that people are not the only things that speak, but often circumstances speak louder than people. So I want to talk about how circumstances speak to us and that we have a choice here in what we're going to listen to. I remember one time that uh, I was a young man and it was in my first job. And I uh, was out with my boss. I've spoken about this guy before. Um, I work for a small specialist car dealer. When I was in England, I was about 19, 20 years old, and called Julian Scaramanga Specialist Cars. And something happened to me on one day which made me think about this concept of the effect of circumstances upon us. And I was out with my boss, Julian, Julian Scaramanga. Um, he was, uh, you, those of you familiar with the James Bond movies know that in The Man with the Golden Gun, the villain is named Mr. Scaramanga. And the... Uh, the villainous character here, his name was actually taken from my boss's name because my boss met when he was on vacation, Ian Fleming, who wrote all the James Bond um, novels. 
and they were having cocktails together in Cyprus, and Ian Fleming thought my uh, boss's father's name was pretty cool and asked him, can I use this in one of my upcoming novels, The Man with the Golden Gun? He said, yes. And so my boss was uh, secretly famous uh, among uh, our circles because he was used as the uh, villain in the James Bond movie. What, of course, the rest of us joked about is that one notable characteristic of Mr. Scaramanga in the Bond movie is that he was the man with a third nipple. But um, <laughs> we, uh, so it rather took away the glamour of uh, being part of a Bond <laughs> in the Bond movie. So anyway, here I was with my um, boss, Julian. So this is, he was a fascinating guy. Um, if you went to the dictionary and looked up the word pedantic, you would see a picture of Julian Scaramanga. He was very very particular about how he liked things. And so he owned this small specialist car dealership, and he loved cars. He was passionate about them, as was I. And he had got to a place in his business where he was fairly successful, and this was in about 1990, probably, and he had purchased a four-year-old Bentley. And so it was a big deal for him. It was a very expensive car, and it was beautiful. It was in Brooklyn's green. It was like a metallic, uh, dark green. And he was absolutely obsessed with this car. And so he drove it for a while, and then he needed to sell it. And so as I was kind of one of his interns, he took me out in this car, and he wanted to kind of show me what was so special and incredible about this car, this very expensive vehicle um, that was going to kind of be pretty key in making money for our, for our business. And so it was interesting. He wouldn't let me drive this car. That was way too much risk for him. But he wanted me to be able to sell this car without really knowing what it was like. So off we went. He drove me around in this car. And then he wanted to show me all the craftsmanship of the interior. So he pulled up in a parking lot next to a river um, that backed into a river. It was on a slight slope um, right in Bath Easton, um, close to where the um, dealership was. And so he backed into a parking spot. Um, next to two large vans on either side, um, so he could show me all the interior and like the fine craftsmanship. So there we were, and he was kind of turning the knobs and showing me what how satisfying the click was when they turned, and moving vents and like changing sliders, and and it was pretty fascinating actually. You know, you it was nothing like an ordinary car. They had this like this handmade aluminum shafts which open the different vents. And he was really in his element, so excited about this precious car, as we were there parked, somewhat precariously, backing into, uh, 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 with the rear of the vehicle, going down towards the river. And so, all of a sudden, as Julian and I looked up, we, we saw the car, going backwards towards the river. And these two vans started disappearing um, from the side of us. Immediately, I saw this panic over Julian's face as he suddenly turned, what is happening? So immediately, he stabbed the brake pedal, nothing happened, still moving. He couldn't believe it. He got the, the column shifter. Could he possibly have left it in neutral or reverse or, or even drive? And with the engine off, we were going backwards. It, he, it was firmly in park. He stamped the brake. He was hitting the, the emergency brake. Nothing was changing. But these two vans to the side of us were just going like this. And this panic 
came across his face as he felt the impact of what he expected of his beautiful prized Bentley careening into the river. This all happened with a matter of probably two seconds. And suddenly, these two big vans that were beside us moved ahead, and we looked to the side and realized that we were not moving at all, but both these vans had just happened to take off at the same time. And I want to let you know that you can confuse the movement of the circumstances around you for your own movement. It can seem like you're going backwards, but all it is is other people may be going forwards and you are planted. And if you don't know where you are, you can look to the circumstances, you can hear their voice, and you will arrive at the wrong conclusion of where you are. And I want to suggest to you that if we're going to have a depth of knowing the voice of our Father and that fellowship that Enoch had, that we have to choose what voices we're going to listen to and what voices we will shut up. Circumstances speak, and often they speak a lot more loudly than the voices of people. Okay. Number one, uh, sorry, number two. You have to choose. You have to choose. The Bible is replete with examples of Jesus telling disciples to choose, make a choice. Back in the Old Testament, Jesus says, uh, sorry, Jesus, well, kind of. God said, I place before you life and death, but choose life. I was reading earlier in the week the example of when um, the, some disciples, they wanted to follow Jesus, and they asked if they can go and bury some of their dead. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow me now. Hands up here if you have children in high school. Anyone have children in high school? We have a handful of people with children in high school. I have three children in high school. And um, I don't know if your guys' experience is anything like mine, but if you have children in high school and you have a bus service, you will on any given day of the week <coughs> be required to actually drive your children to school. Um, and, you know, the more children you have in high school, so I have three, the more driving that you will do to the high school. And despite the fact that I pay thousands and thousands of dollars a year in taxes to ensure that there is a quality, safe, and reliable bus service to take my children to school. Despite that, I will, in fact, use my own gas, my own vehicle, and my own precious time to take my children to school a certain proportion of the time. So when this happens, and I won't say how frequently it is, or I won't, I won't describe the circumstances under which... I may be required to take a child to school. I also won't mention the fact that despite me saving a certain child from uh, missing the bus and giving that child extra time, that I may discover that that particular child has not in fact even had a shower on that particular morning, despite having extra time. I won't mention the fact that 
we may have a conversation uh, over whether or not that particular child's hair has been washed. <clears throat> and uh, I will ask, did you use shampoo? To which I'll get the reply, shampoo? What? <laughs> we will not make mention of that child. <clears throat> so, something that sometimes happens on one of my little morning jaunts into high school, which will happen at about 7.18 in the morning, because they need to be in class at 7.20. <laughs> now, we live pretty close to the high school, so it's not too bad. But something will often happen, and it kind of goes like this. I will have, uh, generally at this point, two children in the car with me. And I'm pretty good at catching lights and driving fast. Nonetheless, we are really up against you know, the clock. We're, it, it, it's down to the wire when we're getting to high school. So now you've got two children who need to be in two different places within the high school at the same time. Now there are multiple entrances into the high school. So as I'm approaching one of these entrances, I will say to these two children who are probably a bit flustered, Okay, which entrance are we going in? The front or the back? And then there will be some discussion that's happening on whether they can get there in time. Will the door be open? Will someone open the door? And I'm like, okay, which is it? Which is it? And then we shoot by that first entrance. And I'm like, okay, we're going into the back entrance. At which point, one child will say, oh, but I, I, I really I should have gone through the front entrance. And I say, well, why don't you say so? I hadn't decided yet. Here's the thing, by the time I went past that first entrance, you had decided. Not deciding is most of the time deciding. And so while it may have been far better for us to go in that first entrance, that if you don't decide when faced with a decision, there comes a point where you have decided. And so our uh, ability to be able to be surrounded by circumstances and being aware of what they are telling us, but then knowing where we are planted and what he is telling us is essential so that when faced with a decision, we're actually going to choose. Because one way or another, we will make a choice. And it's a sad thing to make a choice by not making a choice. Amen? We have to choose. We're given choices, and we have to choose. And let's choose life. Okay, number three here. We have to choose who and what we trust. Choose who and what you trust. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a few different things here. I'm going to read some scriptures, and we're going to talk a little bit about fear. Fear is probably one of the main reasons that decisions are or are not made. Can be, sometimes that can be a good thing, and sometimes it can be a bad thing. So I want to talk a little about fear because the Bible talks a lot about fear, and I think you know, we, we sometimes we understand a portion of the dynamic of fear. 
but we don't maybe understand all that there is. So I'm going to read a couple of passages here. Let's read these together, and we're going to talk about this. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. It's Proverbs 9, verse 10 here. So this translation, I think this is a new living translation I'm using here. It says, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Now, other translations say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Foundation, beginning, kind of the same thing. And knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. So, let's read a couple of other passages here. So, this is something that Jesus said. This is a lot later on. He said this uh, in Matthew 10, 28, talking about fear. Okay, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Wow. We don't want to think of God that way, do we? Now, he goes on to talk about sparrows. This is that passage where he talks about how God sees a sparrow and, uh, and everything else. Uh, and if he, if he cares about them, how much more would he care about you? But we have introduced here this dynamic of the fear of the Lord. So, you know, I feel like this. I'm going to speak for myself. You can make whatever application that you want for yourself with this. I think probably for me, I fear too much other things and don't fear the Lord enough. And I need to make a switch. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of uh, wisdom. So I want to be wise. Who wants to be wise here? You want to be wise? Who wants to have good judgment and make good decisions? I do. So then I need to understand what it is to fear the Lord. And because fear of man is a bad thing, because fear of failure is a bad thing, because um, fear of just about any other external thing is a bad thing, we kind of shy away from trying to examine this concept of what it is to fear the Lord. But I'm going to suggest this to you, that at its core, when we fear something, we give power to that thing. So if I, if I fear man or I fear other people, if I fear what they think, I will give them a power over me which will end up being crippling to me. If I have fear of failure, then I give a power to that fear that will cause me to not take risks and therefore that fear of failure will have a, a power over me, a control over me, which would be harmful. So I want to suggest this to you that if I fear God, having a biblical, healthy, righteous fear of God gives power to God, and His influence over me will be beneficial and helpful and constructive. And so for me to fear God is to, is to make a choice that... His assessment, opinion, and direction on my life and circumstances is of higher value 
than what my circumstances or my natural ability would say about the same things. So when I choose to fear God, my reverence and awe of Him is saying that, that you are greater than I am, so I'm going to give you power, even if it feels scary, because I trust you more than myself or my circumstances. I'm giving you power. And it is scary. It's not like David sitting on a harp, sitting on a stone playing the harp. Some of the times it may be that way. And so the fear of the Lord is a transferal of trust. And it's giving power to him, but his power is benevolent and kind and empowering and strengthening. When I make the voices around me bigger than his voice then I don't fear him enough. Let me say that again. When I make the voices around me, those circumstances, bigger than his voice to me, then I don't fear him enough. Now, I've been through seasons of my life where this exact thing has happened. And you know what? In the midst of it, you don't necessarily recognize it. And the sad thing is, more later, you're like, I can't believe that I thought that and I did that and I felt those things. Now I see what God had in store for me. But at the time, those things were just shouting so loudly, it drowned out His voice. So we can make a decision. We can choose. We can choose to be like Enoch. And if we choose to turn away from the voice of circumstance and listen to his voice, we will have that relationship and that fellowship, that deep knowing with the Lord. When we choose to make a choice and not fear it, because we don't, <laughs> we, his, his way for us is benevolent and kind. And so when we choose to make a choice, we place ourselves in that deep fellowship with him. And when we recognize that even if it feels scary and it seems contrary, his voice is a more reliable voice than all the other voices, we enter into that relationship. We can choose which way to go. Let's pray. Let's stand here if we can. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. Help us find a place in our hearts where we need to let this word land. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come right now and you are kind. You are, you are the counselor. You, you direct and you instruct. You show us where we are. And Lord, I ask that you would, for those of us here that, that 
see the movement of other things and other people around us, and we wrongly conclude that we're the one that's moving back. Lord, if that's us, Father, show us. Show us, Lord, that we are planted, just as we heard as we were worshiping you this morning, that it is your arms around us. It may seem like we're surrounded, but you are surrounding us. You are our protector. You, you, you know what we need. And Lord, we want to yield to you this morning, Father. Lord, for some of us, we know that we desire to know you closer, Lord, but there are choices that we're not making. And Lord, we soberly say we know we need to make choices. There are things that we need to stop doing. There are things we need to start doing. And we want to make choices. And today, we're going to make choices, Lord, that lead us into that close fellowship with you, that we can walk with you, that there would be such a knowing so, Father, we choose today that we, we choose. Holy Spirit, come and show us. And we, we know in our hearts the things we need to do, the things we need to choose. And if that's you, I want you to, within yourself, say to him, now, I choose to do this, whatever it is for you. Thank you, Lord. Father, <clears throat> For those of us who may have had bad experience and experiences, we took risks and we felt that we, we trusted and it went badly. Lord, we're going to lay aside a faulting of you in that situation. And we're going to come back to you and say, Lord, we fear you. Fear you much more than we fear circumstances, other people or ourselves that our, our, our trust is in you. doesn't matter what happened in the past. We choose to believe what you said, to do what you've said, to do what you're saying. And Lord, that's what we want to do. Because Father, we want to know you more. And so we make choices today. We choose to respond. We choose to act. We take strength in you that we can take action. Father, though it has been said cheesily before, we know that no one is born a winner, no one's born a loser. We're all born choosers. And we choose. And then we can, we can receive the prize of you, Father. So Holy Spirit, come and cement these things in our heart. And we make a choice today as a family, as a people, as individuals. And we say, we choose you. We choose your voice. And we choose your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.